Welcome back, everyone, to the Life by Design, Not Default podcast. I am your co-host, Elaine Terso, and I'm here with my business bestie, Kate Page Engel. And we have two new friends with us today. Very excited to have this conversation today, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to read their bio, and you're going to, you're going to understand exactly why we're going to have a super amazing conversation today. So um, first, I'm going to introduce Misasha Suzuki Graham. Um, she is a Harvard College and Columbia Law School graduate, and she has been a practicing litigator for over 15 years and is passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession as well as in her communities. She is a facilitator, writer, and speaker regarding issues of racial justice, especially with regards to children, the co-author of Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, and the co-host of Dear White Women, a social justice podcast. Misasha, who is biracial, Japanese, and white, is married to a Black man and is proud mom of two very active multiracial young boys. They live in the Bay Area of California with their largely indifferent cat. <laughs> I think that's adorable. <laughs> Next up, we have Sarah Blanchard. She's here um, as well, and she helps community and connection through Conscious Conversations, which she does as a facilitator, TEDx speaker, writer, and consultant. After graduating from Harvard and working at Goldman Sachs, Sarah pursued the science and techniques of well-being and is a certified life coach, author of two books, Flex Mom and Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, and co-host of Dear White Women, an award-winning weekly social justice podcast. Sarah is biracial, Japanese, and white, married to a white Canadian man, and is raising their two white presenting girls to be compassionate, thoughtful advocates. They live in Denver, Colorado with their incredibly lovable dog. So we have a cat lover and a dog lover on the show. <laughs> well, well I'm, a, I'm a dog owner. I'm not sure. <laughs> I know lover is a strong word there. Lover is a strong word. I'm a dog lover. Paige is a bird lover, so it's all good. We've got all the we got all the animals covered. Awesome. We have all the all the creatures. All We're the missing creatures. some reptiles. I think I we need some pet reptiles. I know. To throw. My daughter has a reptile. Thankfully, she does not live here, so <laughs> she has a uh, a gecko that's turned rather large, and sometimes she makes me go over to her house and feed it. Oh, mm. kind of smelly. You know what's that smelly? We had a pet mouse for a week that's a smelly pet oh yeah for okay. school you were you were the home for school no the children actually asked no. us to get it it was <laughs> and choice. she did it she's a good mom oh <laughs> and it went back to the pet store it definitely made um it smelled like a farm in my yeah. child's room i didn't like that yes. so much yeah <laughs> well now that we're sharing so that's the funny story about blueberry is that he's here by default um, my son wanted another pet. I said, no reptiles, no dragons, because his friends had bearded dragons. Um, so no dragons, no rodents, uh, and all that, no snake, all that. And he says, well, what about a bird? And I'm like, I did not put bird on the list. So I guess you're getting a bird. <laughs> and we got blueberry five days before the lockdown in 2020. So we got to learn all about bird habitat, all sorts of things during the lockdown. So at least we had a project. So, so let's let's talk about yes. about yes. let's let's get down and dirty. So tell us more about 
the the book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. So what made you, what prompted you to want to write that book? Am I boring holes into your eyes or do you want me to take this one? I thought I <laughs> typically you start and then you just like give me the death stare when you want me to like jump in. So I think you have to understand the backstory a little bit to understand where the book came from. You know, Misasha and I both met as undergrads. We've been best friends for 25 years and we met walking out of a racial identity conversation when we were at Harvard. It was the Half Asian People's Association meeting. We went partway through, you know, because we didn't agree with how they were presenting the topic. And so like, we sort of met jostling in the hallway and we're like, oh, cool. So you can tell like, who knew that 25 years later, we'd be having these conversations on a totally different platform. But I think being biracial, um, both of us being Japanese and white, you know, each of us has an, an immigrant parent means that we've both always thought about identity and race and belonging sort of in our blood since we were younger, just living in our, in our homes. And so fast forward and we've, you know, been doing our own thing for, for so many years. And we basically were realizing that, you know, as best friends, you shift conversations from like Misasha giving me fashion advice to that conversation has not shifted, <laughs> by the way, that's, that is a continuum in our friendship. China, help so. me. She's fancy. I'm <laughs> mountain cash. Um, oh my but, God. You guys sound like Elaine and I, but keep going. <laughs> But so we we both got married and had kids and the conversation started shifting, right? My kids look white, her kids look black. And we were realizing because of our like identities, we've been able to float in lots of different circles, including white women's circles. And we were realizing what conversations were and definitely were not happening in those circles. And so we thought, you know, we're talking about so much of this stuff when it comes to raising our kids and how what, what our concerns were, um, what if we were to take those and bring them onto a bigger platform so we can shift the narrative in some of these social circles? Um, and so we've been consistently doing it since April of 2019 and have had this show. And, and in 2020, we basically thought about bringing it to a new audience. And Misasha, you can take it from here. Yeah. So, um, Although both we are podcast hosts, one of us does not listen to podcasts um, at all. So we recognize that uh, this conversation we felt was too important of a conversation to leave it just on the podcast platform. Um, we wanted to reach a much larger audience in certain ways. And one thing that we both love is, is reading. So for us, like books was just a very obvious next step. but. You know, it was 2020. Um, we were homeschooling our kids. We, you know, there were just a few things that happened that year. And um, just a right, just a couple. I mean, in the haze, I'm saying 2020, I feel like there's this haze that actually blocks me from physically remembering 2020. But, um, you know, around the fall is when we were t really talking about writing this book because we had this opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, Sarah asked me, well, why should we write this book now? Basically, like, P.S. Don't you think we have a lot of stuff going on? Sort of, I can, you know, feel it. And it was very much a best friend talk, not so much a business partner talk in that moment. And um, I said the first thing that came to my mind, which is still my truth to this day, which is I'm trying to save my kids' lives. And I think that it, it's very, you know, it's hard for me to say that at times because it is very draining to say, right? It's exhausting to say that, like, I 
but I feel that way, right? I feel very strongly about this book in that way because to this day, and people ask a lot how we measure success, right? How do we measure success of the book? And is it by, you know, sales or is it by reviews or is it by, you know, the, the PR that we get? And to me, that metric is very simple. If one person buys the book and that person in some way either reads the book and changes their mindset or has a conversation that leads to someone changing their mindset and that person has the ability in, a, in another moment to decide whether my boys live or die, right? Or kids who look like my boys live or die. And they make a different decision based on that book, our book, then it's a success, right? Done. We can walk away. I will be 100% good forever. Um, because I think there is so much power in in having these conversations, in, in getting uncomfortable. Um, and it really is about moving forward, right? Looking to the future and what is that future if not our kids right and and how they will move through this world so that is a very circular i think um response to your original question but i think the backstory kind of gets us to that answer yeah for sure for sure yeah no i i love you also including the backstory because i think a lot of people don't realize um that everyone has a story um, whether it impacts you yourself or maybe a neighbor or a family member who perhaps is biracial or in a difficult situation or, you know, uh, Sarah, your children are white presenting. I love uh, that you use that terminology because I myself am biracial. My son, I'm married to a Caucasian and so my son is biracial. And so because they don't know what he is, Right. We've had many situations in school. Well, Elaine remembers this uh, when he was in third grade. He's biracial. But when he was in third grade, they called him burrito and um, were bullying him um, about that when indeed he is not right but it just he presents that way he you know that's just how he looks and I love um, just talking about the fact of your your boys, right? Um, and how how is the world going to perceive them? And and those are conversations that we've had to have with our son as well. So I love the fact that you are very much interested in not hiding away from these types of conversations and actually having these conversations because that is one of the things in the last two years that Elaine and I have gone back and forth a lot of times. She knows that she can come to me and I will tell her what the nitty gritty is right so how what do you do how can we get this book in the hands of more people more people who say that they're allies or who want to be allies what would you say to to women who are listening and and how they can help with al you know being an ally I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's an important question because I think we have all seen this wave, you know, after George Floyd's murder, there was this huge wave of interest and, and so many white people saying, we're going to buy all the books and we're going to do all the things. And then the pandemic got to be a lot, right? Life got to be a lot. And a lot of people are like, aren't we over racism yet? I, I don't, I'm too busy to do this. I, I have other things that I'm really worried about do we still have to talk about this? And I think in that moment, there's a couple of things that I think people need to remember. One, 
is that white people have a race too. We all show up in a, in a racial identity. So we are all an important part of this conversation. Two, um, if you get to choose to opt out of these conversations, you very much have privilege because the people who are affected negatively by this do not have the choice because it is a fight for their lives. And three, I think we have to remember that it is not the victim's problem, right? It is not the people who are being hurt's problem. This is a white people problem. This is a systemic problem. This is a thing that affects all of us. And so we can't opt out. We have to actually remember that when we're talking about self-discovery, being a good person and like developing ourselves and living a happier life, you have to examine your racial identity. You have to examine the dynamics because it is a part of every moment that we live and breathe and move through the United States. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that, um, so my, we've had, we've had some discussions in my house about all of, all of this, because, you know, we're just a bunch of white people in this house, but, um, my son, um, playing football, there's a very diverse group of boys that play football and in high school and all of, you know, so he has friends of all backgrounds and my husband happens to work in law enforcement. He works as, as a corrections officer and is also a football coach. And one of the football coaches had come over to our house and um, he was in his 20s. And that was the first time my husband learned that um, black boys are having the conversation about what to do if you get pulled over. And my husband goes, what? Like, what, what are you talking about? That was the first time that he realized and really truly understood what white privilege was. And I said, I have never ever in my life had to have a conversation with my son about what to do if he gets pulled over because I am not, I don't fear the police with, with my son. It, it never would have crossed my mind because it just never would have crossed my mind. And so that was like a really huge aha moment um, in our household and kind of made my husband go, oh, you know what I mean? Just that like, oh my God, like, because he was a volunteer police officer. And so then he was like, oh, are people afraid of me? Like that broke his heart. Like to think that someone would be afraid of him because he was wearing a badge or had a gun on his hip or something like that, that someone would be afraid of him and would that him getting someone pulling someone over that their initial thought is fear. I'm, I could die right now. And he's just like, oh my God, like he wants desperately to get out of the profession because it's so hard to, um, to wrap his mind around being in a profession that is hurting people and that is negatively impacting other communities. It's really hard for him. And I know he has dreams of doing bigger things, but he's so damn scared to leave. Right. And so, um, but there have been a lot of other people that have been leaving the profession and there's a, a, a crisis, if you would say amongst law enforcement, where they are, people are leaving in droves because they, they don't want to be associated with that you know, and there's the bad apples ruin all the good that, that is, that is ever done. The, the one that are hurting and taking people's lives unfairly and unjustly, it ruins it. It ruins the profession for, for the good guys, you know, the ones that are actually trying to help people. So it's, it's been a difficult, 
um, eye-opening conversation that we've had in our house. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have any tips or advice on how can families sit down and have that conversation with their kids or um, just helping people see that, you know, white privilege, the one thing that always drive, drove me crazy about when people talked about it was, you know, well, I grew up poor, so tell me where my white privilege is. And I'm like, oh my God, shut up. You know, it just literally drives me crazy. I, I noticed you adopted a Southern accent for that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, how can we have those conversations? Like, in a way that, you know, I don't like conflict. I don't, I don't like conflict, but those conversations are necessary. So how can we have them in a, in a way that might be uncomfortable, but it's okay because we're, we're having breakthroughs. I don't even like, where do you start? Um, so those are great questions, you know, and I, um, I think that the convert, I'm going to have Sarah talk to some of the conversation part because that appears very differently in my house for obvious reasons, right? Like we have those conversations out of necessity. Um, but I will say on the white privilege side, because we, we do hear that a lot too. And um, I will say that white privilege, I think, you know, there's a lot when people hear words, right? Like white privilege or um, Black Lives Matter, let's say that I feel like they're adding in words, right? Or that don't, that aren't, said and aren't there right like for black lives matter for example they're adding that word only right before that which is absolutely not at all right what what that is at all about and i think for white privilege people hear white privilege and they cancel or they don't hear that hard work right can coexist with white privilege like it's white white privilege and hard work can completely coexist that's not the issue right you can be poor and have white privilege. You can work really hard and be very successful and have white privilege. And it's simply, you know, <clears throat> have you been disadvantaged at all or not given something because of the color of your skin? That is, it's very, I think people, you know, the connotations of the words for people um, get very messy. And so that's why words matter, right? Meanings matter of words. Um, but that's yeah, uh, yeah. I, th I think you're right because people just yeah. jump to the privilege part yeah right. and they're like i was i wasn't financially privileged they totally mm -hmm. inject financial instead of white right and mm -hmm. we're talking solely about the the privilege of not being knocked down a peg based on the color of your skin yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing i wanted to add was like how do you have that conversation i think it's explaining it just like that if, if people get defensive I think when you have those conversations, like you said, Elaine, you know, you don't want confrontation. I don't think anybody wants confrontation in the traditional way. You know, I, I don't, but I think conversations get unproductive if you're triggering defensiveness and you have to allow it to have space and time and, and to be able to return to it. None of these are a one and done conversation. And so you have to give yourself grace that you will make a mistake. You have to give understanding to the other person that if they're triggered, if they're defensive, you will return to it if it's an important conversation, because it's an important conversation to have. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that you said earlier about, for example, that idea of in, in a white household, you didn't have to talk about the police. And in black households, a lot of the times they have that conversation. I think it's important to realize, you know, going back to Paige's original question before about how can we have more people read this book and get more involved? 
if you have any vision in your mind of your child having a friend as a white person, if you hope that your friend or your kid might have a friend who's a black friend, an Asian friend, I think any diversity, it's important to explain these concepts to them so they can be a good friend. How different would that car ride be with a bunch of teenage kids, right? If, if the white kid is egging everybody else on, not understanding the danger or the threat or the fear that their black friends might have in that car. Mm-hmm. And so in order to be a better friend, be a better community member, we also really need to be talking to our kids about it, or they're going to potentially be in, in, you know, more really difficult situations. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's so important, you know, uh, like Masasha was saying about when people hear those words, they bring their own context to the to the situation, right? They, they aren't, they, it's colored by whatever their worldview is and their perspective. And, and sometimes that's not always good. Um, that's not always beneficial. You know, I, I travel extensively, you know, pre panorama, um, I would travel extensively and uh, in Europe and, you know, around in Asia. And it's just a different, it's just a different mentality. And what we're having going on in the United States right now is, is really interesting. I have lots of international friends who, you know, message me and say, what the heck you guys got going on over there uh, right now? And it, and it's hard to be able to really give them, like, I don't know what's going on. I can't tell you why these people are losing their minds. You know what I mean? And so it's really difficult when you have, you know, I have a middle schooler who is not only learning about himself, but also other children, you know, kids at his age. And they essentially were supposed to be talking about um, some things with Black History Month and that kind of stuff. But a lot of that was halted because, you know, there's a huge debate right now about um, race theory and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, during Black History Month, they should be learning, you know, the accomplishments of people, Black Americans, um, and, and what their contributions are. And now it's being really limited. So what what can we do? I mean, we, Elaine and I are a part of a women's group and we have lots of people who want to be, like I said, want to be allies. Um, but then, you know, being one of the only African-American women in the leadership of this company, the, the senior leadership of this company, uh, you know, people are just, they, I've always had, you know, the situation where it's like people will come and talk to me instead of someone else. You guys know what that's like, right? You're shaking your heads like bobbleheads right now because you seem safe and you seem worldly and, you know, and you seem open and people were asking questions. Elaine knows how, when everything went down, I was just like, look, I am not the spokesperson for every single African-American woman, right? And actually Elaine got so, I will say this, this is what's so great about our friendship. She got so mad that everyone was asking me questions that she wrote a post and said, here's where you guys can go and learn. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that Elaine? Yeah, because, you know, I, being anti-racist, anti-racist is, Uh, a decision that you make every single day. And it's not something that you can't just say, I'm not racist because 
that's right. We all have biases and stereotypes and all within us. And it takes active work to dismantle the shit that has just been ingrained in our brains. And I, part of my own journey was, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to listen. I'm going to be a really good listener. I want to listen to other people's experiences. I was a devout subscriber to Emmanuel Acho's uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Like that was an incredible series that made me go, okay, like I'm starting to get it right. Like I really want to understand because I want to, um, if I were to hear something, I want to be able to have an arsenal of tools with me to be able to say, dude, that's not okay. Like you can't say that. Um, and so when, you know, all of the George Floyd stuff was happening and, you know, our women's organization is worldwide. Um, a lot of Midwest, a lot of it's a melting pot, right? There's a whole bunch of people from all the different places. And we started seeing, I started seeing people that I was like, mm, that's, that's not okay. Nope. That's not okay. And I had to say, am I going to start an argument with someone in a comment section? Because who's ever changed their mind from a comment section, correct? <laughs> right. <laughs> or am I just going to say, I am choosing to not, I don't want someone like that in my life. Bye. Right. Like that. And I was, I struggled with that. Like, what well, do I do? And you I know? think you, you also struggled because it, those opinions and perspectives were coming from people that you didn't expect it to. Correct. I was like, wow, everybody's showing their racism today. Like, and I just was like, oh, like I did not expect that from you. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here like, you didn't know. right because how would I like you know what I mean it was just never you never really saw people's true colors until all of this stuff started happening and it was kind of a like an us versus them mentality and I'm like whoa like what is really truly going on here and I watched I watched a um documentary um that was created in 2016 right after Charlottesville so it was kind of in the same kind of realm. And it was a Muslim director. And um, I was absolutely flabbergasted when this, uh, the director interviewed someone that was a white nationalist. And he, within the first five minutes said the thing that I was like, did he just say what I think he just said? And I went and found the transcript. Cause I was like, I really need to make sure that I'm understanding specifically what this man just said. And he basically said that he um, the fear is that white people will become the minority and becoming the minority is not a place that white people wanted to be. So therefore to assert their dominance, right? They have, this is, this is their way of not becoming a minority because the fear is that people of color will treat white people the way that people of color have been treated. And they don't like that power dynamic, that shift. Right. And, uh, I was like, oh my goodness. Like, I don't think people really understand that that's the fear. And that's why there's this whole thing of, you know, white people are more superior. That's some bullshit if I've ever heard it in my life, you know, but when talking to Paige's point was, I, in my listening, I have heard over and over then again, that it's not a black woman's responsibility to teach us 
we have to teach ourselves. And so when she was like, y'all like, listen, I am not your poster child. And just because you have me as your friend does not mean you're not racist. Like you have to actively go do the work. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to step up and say something then. Cause as a white person, maybe other white people will listen to me. Right. And, uh, and go do the damn work, go do your own damn work. You know, and isn't that the ugly truth? They will, they will listen differently when it comes yes. from a different color face. Yeah. That's what boggles my mind, but yes. Yeah. So I was like, how can I use my privilege to amplify and to educate and to maybe come in a non-threatening manner, some bullshit, but that's truly like, I was just like, how can I help? How can I make a difference? How can I ease the burden that's that all of my friends of color were feeling? because everybody was going to them wanting to have conversations with them about it and, and almost like get the, Oh, honey, you're not racist. It's okay. Like they, they were like expecting to get this. You're not racist. Don't worry about it from people of color. And I'm like, that's not, that's not okay. And I wasn't passing out those cards that week. (laughs) That's right, girl. You were not. (laughs) But, But, and what I'm, what I'm glad you know, one of the things sometimes people can can step in and what you're not doing is being this white savior, right? Like that idea of like, I'm going to talk for people. You know, you were like, no, we need to do this work ourselves. You weren't speaking on behalf of anybody else's experience. You were just taking ownership of your part. And, and I think that's something that people need to keep in mind when they hear conversations like this about white people doing the work. It's definitely not about taking other people's voices and standing up like, but it's, it's about doing this work themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also liked what you, when you were talking about, you know, using your voice, right? Like really using your voice and using that privilege. Um, because when I think when people ask us, what can I do? Right? Like use your voice, um, recognize that you in those spaces where you have privilege, cause we have them, right? We, we have them use your voice, um, get loud, right? Because as Sarah and I've been talking about people, people who are very actively racist, they're loud. They're actually really loud at times. I mean, sometimes they're the ones who aren't loud and those are the scariest, um, right? right? For sure. Cause you don't know where you stand with them, but the loud ones, they're very loud. And we see a lot of that right now and it's increasing, right? It's not, it's not going down. Like, you know, we didn't solve racism in 2020. We didn't solve it in 2021 either. But, you know, I think it's, I I keep coming back, Sarah, to this time where someone had said, I think when we were talking on something about how we're so brave for talking and I'm like, it's not right. It is not. It is being a good human. It is getting up there and using our voice. Um, And I think that's what that's what we need to do. Right. Because Elaine, to your point, um, being anti-racist is about the action, right? It is about the action because we can sit and read and listen, which is really important to do as well, but it can't end there. And I think a lot of people are like, ah, I read the books, right? I, um, you know, I thought about it, got that black friend. Like I, you know, I, I, um, I don't see color, like it name any of the things that, mm-hmm. um, have no bearing on, you know, being an, an, an actual anti-racist. So I think it is about doing and, and finding that space, that sphere of influence, using your voice in it. 
And I think you're making a really important point because I think for some people who are new-ish to the conversation, they're like, but I don't like standing in the front of the protest. That makes me feel scared. Or, or I don't know how to testify. There are so many other ways to be anti-racist and make a change in your community. So I think if you take a, a moment to think about where do I have influence, like what work sphere are you in? You know, who, who can you talk to at work? What, uh, if you have children, like how are their schools doing? What's the PTA or how's the school library? What books are the kids reading in the classroom? Your local libraries, like where are you buying the candle that you wanna gift as a, as a gift from? You know, there's so many areas that we can influence and make different choices with things that we're already doing. And, and I think that goes back to that idea of like every day you make that intentional choice to engage and think and disrupt and use your voice. Um, because I think, like you said, the haters are getting really loud. Yeah. And what do you think is going to happen if we just let haters get loud? What's going to happen, right? Like, squeaky wheel. And, and that's the change that's going to happen. That's, we're already seeing it happening in different states. And so if we don't stand up, if we, if we're sort of thinking, just thinking we're anti-racist, but not doing, not making, not speaking out, I think we're kind of, if you draw the line for where this country's going, yeah, you, know, you can sort mm -hmm. of see that. And it's, it's scary. Well, and I, I also think it's a very important point that we need to bring up in this conversation that it's not just a black and white thing. Right. I mean, it's pretty much all people of color, you know, whether you're brown, you know, black, whatever. It's like all people of color are feeling this right now in a more at a more intense level than they have than, than they have in my lifetime. Now, my mom's lifetime, you know, she grew up in Alabama during desegregation. So it's like to her, she's seen all this. You know what I mean? But for us, it's just like, can't we just stop this now? And let me just say, I, and I say this to Elaine all the time. I'm like, these millennials and Zs are not, and alphas are not having this crap. They are not sitting and just taking it. They are standing up for what's right. And, you know, the boomers are having a real hard time with it. <laughs> yep. Cause it's the way it's always been. Yeah. And that's right. Forget, forgetting that the policies that were put in place that helped them get to where they were, mm -hmm. were not benefits that were extended to people of color. Like they, exactly. they, and I think that's what I love about um, this conversation and also understanding the history. You know, our book is structured in a way that has listen, right? People's stories learn, which is the history of like, how did we get to where we are? Yeah. So that you can do the act part, which is the third section we have in every chapter. Because I think once you know that information mm -hmm. and, and have empathy for and, and hear people's stories, you can't see the world in the same way. Yeah, I there's um, I'm an avid TikTok lover. I'm just gonna let you guys know that. Like wow. I turn on TikTok all the time. You're so cool. You're like <laughs> I, there. I know. <laughs> but I have really curated an amazing algorithm where I'm in a constant learning, right? And I learned um, there's a guy that basically is um, he's like a professor. He's like some sort of educator. And he talked about who invented whiteness. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea that there was a person who basically invented whiteness and, and the and, way that they positioned it, yeah. right. Was that the superior, it was superior after like, um, examining skeletons and, or, you know, skulls and, 
I was like, excuse me? Like, I had no idea. Like, literally, I had no idea. So I think that's really important is to go through the history. And that's, I think, what scares people about the whole CRT thing is that people, white people think that CRT is going, is there, the intention is to make white people feel guilty and feel bad for shit that happened in the past. And in fact, one of the teach, I follow teachers too. Right. And they're like, when we talk about this stuff in school, they are like, wow, that's really sad. And how can we make sure that never happens again? So it's not about making the white kids feel guilty. It's about how they want to know, how can we prevent this from happening again? And I'm like, see, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. But there's this fear, that backlying fear that they just can't seem to get over. And something that is really sad that has been happening in my state. So I'm in Washington and I used to think that, you know, oh, my little bubble, like I never saw racism here until I saw TikTok of, um, Someone in a little bit south of of where we are is they have white lives matter like shit going on and like draping banners over the the highway um, overpass. And I'm like, excuse me, like what the hell is happening? And then I learned there's a whole shit ton of stuff happening over on Telegram, um, which is not a platform that I use that is all about these white lives matter chapters that are opening up everywhere. And the video was of a black woman getting out and going, are you fucking kidding me right now? And then they they recorded her and attacked her based on her looks. And so, you know, and of course the TikTok community always steps up and paid off her mortgage, like for real. But like that kind of stuff is like, and then I go, okay, so what do I do about that? right? What do I do about that? Because that's unacceptable. And then my thought is like, oh, I'm going to get angry and I'm going to, I'm like, but I'm just me. Right. And so I always think, how can I use my voice for good, never evil, but what do I do? Like, that's the kind of stuff that goes through my head. And then I just sit here and go, fuck. Right. It's hard. It's like the hard questions and the things that, that, I don't know that I internally struggle with. So I'm just curious, I guess, you know, um, one of the questions that I'm always curious about is how do we know when racism has ended, right? And I don't know that anyone really has the answer for that, but it's something that I always, cause I'm, a, I'm an end result kind of person, right? You were talking about how do we know that the book has made an impact? It's like, how do we know when the fight against equality has the, we've won that war? Elaine, I'm sorry to tell you. I know, but I want. (laughs) (laughs) Need measurable results. Well, see, and that's part of the conversation. Yeah. You may have this idealistic view of what you like to have happen, but the reality is, and you know, I'm a realist. I'm always very optimistic and positive, but I'm a realist. I know. When you are surprised by people's reactions or comments, I'm not surprised. I know. (laughs) I, I wonder, because I think one of the things people forget is racism is so tied into this idea of hierarchy and power and, um, inequality and, 
there's so many systems in our country that are part of that. You know, if you think about the wealth inequality, if you think about so many different levels of, uh, you know, the structures that are in place that continue that, that when we don't have safety nets in our country, like so many other successful, happier countries actually have, that we would have to see an entire systems change for, I think, this idea of equality to even come close. Well, and even- we can't we can't get there because we yeah. can't talk about CRT in schools, right? Which is that entire theory, like that, right. yeah. Because no one wants to believe that they are benefiting from something um, that to the detriment of other people, yeah. And that but they want to believe that they're there because they're there, not because there were was redlining where families couldn't buy homes, right, in huh? certain areas. They don't want to think that. They don't want to think that at all. They mm-hmm. want to think that that their family, grandfather, uncle worked really hard, and that's why they're able to live in those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, you know, I mean, this issue is very systemic. It's very deep rooted. Um, and until you are in a position to use your voice and have, and I hate to say it, have some some background and kudos and cojones behind your voice, right? Um, people won't listen. You know what I mean? I mean, we are sitting here with two Harvard, Harvard educated women, right? And and Elaine knows this with okay, so ladies, I went to Mount Holyoke for undergrad. And so, yeah, you shake your head. Yeah. So when people when someone hears that, that bumps me up a notch right? Compared to maybe somewhat, you know, other African-Americans, right? I have a master's degree. They're like, oh, you have a master's degree? Yeah. And so do all my friends who are black. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? But that just adds, you know, another layer to the credibility. And it's always, you know, there, there are times where I always feel like I'm fighting this whole credibility ladder. Like I'm always climbing up, but if I didn't have it, where would I be? Right. And that's a part of of what the problem is. So I, I, I just wanted to say kudos to you ladies for using the title white women. And I want you to kind of like delve a little bit into that. Why did you, you choose the title that you chose for your book? So that's a great question. Um, we get asked, I think that's the number one question we get asked between the podcast and the book. Um, and, and people have different ways of asking that question, depending on how they feel about the title, because there's no way that you hear Dear White Women and you don't feel something about that title, I think. Um, and, you know, my mother, being a white woman, was also like, did you really have to call it that? Like, so, you know, I've had this conversation and Sarah's had this conversation, but I would say there are sort of two reasons, really. So the first is um, because how we were talking about earlier, how Sarah and I were sort of float through these circles of white women and knew what was being said, what wasn't being said, and also what was being said when they didn't think someone of color was in the room. And that's a big third component, too. Um, But we also recognize that women have a lot of 
power, right? A lot of power that is undervalued or devalued um, by our society. And that power shows up in a lot of different spheres, right? It shows up at home around the dinner table, right? It shows up at work. It shows up in book club. It shows up in social circles. It shows up in so many different places. It shows up through wallet power, right? Because women control a large part of financial decisions. Um, but for white women, right, having that additional layer of white privilege on top of that power means that this is a voice that also, to Elaine's earlier point, might be heard in places that other voices aren't heard. And what if we could change the conversation within those circles of white women to end have white women's voices be united at, and amplified and united with voices of women of color too, because that has been a really big issue um, and really push for that change in the future. Cause that's the group, like that is the group that Sarah and I know really, really well. Um, and that's a group that we really wanted to talk to. That's not to say that we're not talking to everyone, but you know, I, I think that in terms of how we make change in this group, which is largely not largely, but there has been so much, you know, conflict and misunderstanding or um, lack of understanding, right, about how women are not all similarly situated. And so this voice in particular is one that we wanted to really just kind of force that change with. So, And women get empathy a little bit more in this realm too, mm -hmm. right? Like any any woman who's ever not worn the skirt because it's a little too short or not gone jogging because it's like dusk and you're like, oh, I'm a little scared because of how I look in public, right? Like you get what that means and you get what it means to fight harder, to get the raise, to, to get your foot in the door. Women know how to work really freaking hard. And so, yeah, I mean, people shy away from this conversation about race and racism because it's hard, but we can do hard things. Women can do very hard things and they do on a regular basis. So we really think there's a lot of hope and potential here. Because women are badass bitches, right? Yes. Like that's just the reality, right? Like <laughs> honestly, like a woman scorned, mm, like you do not want to mess with her, right? And so I think that you are absolutely right that going to white women to have these conversations is really truly in my mind, like what's going to change everything? Because I just feel like there's we, we do hold a lot of power. And I don't think women always realize that we do hold a lot of power. And one of the things that I learned, um, was, um, there's another, I want to, um, trying to remember what country it is. I'm friend told me this and I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Women are like sacred in, in, in this other country where they are just like, goddesses right and and the men do all the work because they believe that women are you know the matriarch of everything is actually more powerful and they they fear women because they know how powerful they are and i'm like yeah fear us you know <laughs> but okay so um let's ask one of our questions that we always ask our guests and the first one i'm going to ask you is how have you both created a life by design and not default i'm going to do part one foundation of this because as mom well because i think you can do the the pivot in career part of it but i know for me um my husband travels a lot for work uh outside of the pandemic and my kids 
were my priority. Like, and, and they had, they were the kind of kids that just didn't appreciate the change of someone coming in and out all the time and that sort of stuff. So I intentionally crafted a life where I would be present and I would be the primary caregiver for the kids outside of their school hours. And so all of the work and the impact that I hope to make, I do my very, very best to plan those for the school day, like during the school day, during the, like the school year so that I can be with them in the short years that we have while they're under our roof, you know? And, and, and that was a big step coming, like stepping away from like the money, the Ivy league, like that trajectory of success. It took a lot for me to intentionally create that. But a lot of it was because my dad died when I was 26 and, and it rocked my world. And I was like, Oh, we don't live forever. And so making that choice, um, to step out and, and create a different work pattern for myself was my intentional choice. Nice. Um, I think for me, so the reason I became an attorney in the first place is because I really wanted to give a voice to people whose voices largely weren't heard um, throughout the system for a variety of reasons. Um, and as I was talking about with Sarah and, and on a different one of our podcast episodes, it was because of the, the cases that surrounded the Japanese incarceration in the United States that really pushed me towards that. But I and, you know, I I was a litigator at a large law firms for a number of years. Um, but I think that a lot changed for me, A, when I had kids and B, in 2016, um, because I there were certain things that I had wanted to believe about our country um, that I I could not believe anymore, and I really wanted to use my voice in a way that was going to have the most impact. Um, so now I do it through the work that I feel so fortunate to be able to do with Sarah. Um, and I do voter protection and election protection work with my legal degree. Um, but I want to, I, the through line through this is I, I want to be very intentional about the future that we are creating for our children and how does my voice get us to that future? Um, that's how I want to use it. And that's what I think about every single day. So that's what I've done in that respect. That is amazing because one of the things we just love other women who are intentional and, and are making an impact, right? Um, we meet so many people who are not. So it's so it's so great to, to meet like-minded folks who want to make an impact in their special way, right? However, they're doing that. So one of the another question that we always ask is, um, what is the model that you live by? So my model doesn't change, um, and Elaine's changes based on what season she's in or what's motivating her this week. So I'll share mine, and then I'll ask both you ladies yours, and then we'll find out what Elaine's is. So mine is, I deserve to be here. I've uh, worked really hard. I've had lots of successes, a few hiccups and challenges along the way, but I deserve to be right here, right now, and just enjoy the moment. Um, Sarah, what is the motto that, or mottos that you live by? Yeah, I have, a, I have a couple. One is right behind me. I am enough. That's been the season for me the last couple of years and, and through ups and downs and, and deconstructing my childhood and all of these sorts of things, realizing that I inherently bring enough value. I am okay the way I am. And 
Um, so I love that, but also we rise by lifting others is sort of the motto that I really truly believe in that we are in it together and that we help each other out and we're better for it. Oh my gosh. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely echo the I uh, we rise by lifting others. You know that's basically our podcast, our platform motto. Um, I think for me, the other motto that's more current, right, is um, keep asking why, um, because I I think a lot of um, something that's been hard for me to do sometimes is to ask why, right? Uh, to ask why are things a certain way? Why? why do we do this? And, and when the answer is often, you know, because it's always been done that way, like it, you know, there's a fury that, that rises in me that, but I think that as Americans, um, especially as adults, right, we lose that, that ability or that desire to question. Um, and it's questioning that's going to get us to that future, right. That will get us to the change that we want to see. So that's my other motto. Mm -hmm. Oh, I awesome. love that too. See, these are so good. So, so good. Yes. And Elaine, what do we got this week? Um, my The one that's really fueling me uh, the last couple of weeks is what got you here will not get you there, right? Everything you have learned up until this point has gotten you where you are. And that's awesome. But what do you need to do in order to get there? Like, what do you need to learn? What need? Who do you need to become? All of those things are kind of uh, fueling me right now um, as I think about the next level for myself and the next level for my clients and whatever is, okay, so what do we need to learn in order to get over there, right? Because it's not you, it's not gonna be with what you have right now, you know? So I'm on a constant state of learning and um, that's just something that always drives me. Love it. So this has been such a great, and, and valuable uh, uh, conversation that I think our listeners needed to hear. Um, and so where can people find, buy the book, find out more about you, find, you know, I know that you all do speaking and workshops and all that kind of stuff. So where can people find out more about you? We house everything centrally at our website, dearwhitewomen.com. So from there, you can buy the book, which would be a great starting point. It's a really good entry point into a lot of these conversations if people want to establish a baseline. If they want to keep up with all of our, like the constant work, it's also on that website, or you can follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, Dear White Women Podcast. And then if you're a social media kind of person, Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast or Twitter at DWW Podcast are the places to find us. Fantastic. Well, this has been super amazing. I was really looking forward to today, you know, and, um, so thank you for coming and sharing your nuggets and your wisdom with us and helping us to um, get out of our own damn way, right? We, we really truly have the power within us um, if we choose to have it, right? We have to choose, it's a, it's a choice. Um, so thank you for coming and sharing all of that with us. And um, this has been really, really great. Paige, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say thank you, Sarah and Masasha, uh, for your contributions to our communities and making them making the world a better place for our children. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time.